Hey, I, I want to share a verse that we, uh, we read this week in our Bible reading program. It's one of my favorite verses now. It's Psalm 33, verse 1, and it says this, Praise from the upright is beautiful. Here's what I wrote. Yeah, it's not about the quality of my voice, but the quality of my life that makes my praise beautiful. So you know what? People may have a better voice than me. Most people have a better voice than me, but God can still see my praise as beautiful. So I'm pretty excited about that verse. Anyhow, and for those of you like me who cannot sing very well, hold on to that verse. Hold it tightly. All right. Hey, let's do this. I want to start off with a couple of passages of Scripture as we begin our time today. And the first is in Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 27. It's approaching 9 a.m. in the morning. Jesus was arrested the night before, and he spent the last 12 plus hours not sleeping in a bed, but going through several mock trials, standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and being beaten, punched, beard ripped out, spit upon, insulted, and having a Roman scourge tear across his body 39 times, ripping his entire back open. And now Jesus is forced to carry a, a cross of wood on his back up to the hill that we call Calvary. However, Jesus has lost so much blood that his beaten, bruised, and bleeding body crumbles underneath the weight. As the religious leaders continue to mock him, as the crowds that line the street shout, crucify him. And by the way, Jesus endured all this for you and for me. And Luke records these words. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country. And put the cross on him and made him carried behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And then Luke continues in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. There they hammered nails into his hands and feet. And I cannot even begin to imagine the pain Jesus felt as he hung there for six hours every breath scraping his torn back across that wood. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, and we just sang, oh, I can see it now. I can see the love in his eyes. Because I knew this verse was coming, I was picturing Jesus looking down at those who had crucified him, nailed him, beat him, mocked him, insulted him, spit upon him, ripped his beard out, stripped him naked, and were now gambling for his clothes, and he's hanging there, and I can see it now. I can see the love in his eyes as he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I understand God the Son with his hands and feet spiked to a Roman cross, blood streaming down his body, each breath causing unimaginable pain, looks down at his executioners who were casting lots for his clothes that they had just stripped off his body, and he says, Father, forgive them. Wow. Are you kidding me? Maple Grove, that's our king. That's our savior. That's our Jesus. Amen? Amen? And then Paul writes the following in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. You see, at 
just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Someone say, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues, since we've now been justified by his blood, because of his blood, God looks at us as if we've never sinned. How much more shall we save from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we're reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have been reconciled shall we be saved by his life? God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. We were reconciled to God through Jesus' death when we were God's enemies. Heavenly Father, we, we humbly come into your presence you're great and you're good and your love for us is incomprehensible. You loved us while we were your enemies. You died for us while we were still sinners. You gave your life when we wanted nothing to do with you. And you continue to open out your hands to us when we rebel. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your example. God, I pray today that you'll enable me to preach your word and hear your word, and that it makes a difference, not just in this room, but in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to week 23 in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. Welcome to week 16 of our study of Jesus' radical manifesto about what life in His Kingdom is all about, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And welcome to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, in this morning's conversation, how to destroy your enemies so that they're no longer your enemies. Understand the verses we're about to unpack today, August 14, 2022, represent the high point of Jesus' entire Kingdom Life Manifesto. And listen, not only the high point, but I think they represent the most difficult commands that Jesus has ever called us to obey. I mean, if you thought our conversation last week was a tough one, that we have the right to be wrong, was hard, you know, in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, when Jesus tells us that in a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, Jesus says, that those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. Again, if you thought that teaching was tough, and it is, as Bachman Toner Overdrive would say, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet, because the command that Jesus gives us today takes kingdom living to an entirely new dimension. I mean, not retaliating when we're wrong is one thing, But what Jesus says next seems impossible to actually live out. Okay, buckle up. Here's our text for this morning. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good good to those who hate you, and pray for those who persecute you. And I want to briefly point something out here. 
If you look at uh, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, okay? If you're following along, that's why I'm telling you, because I can get sidetracked by this. Like, in some versions, you won't see that in the actual text up top. It'll be a footnote in the bottom. For example, King James, New King James has it in the translation, in the text. NIV, ESV, Haxi has it in the footnote. And the reason they did that is because those verses don't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. So what probably happened is scribes were copying the later manuscripts, they added it. And the reason they added it is because what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 that shows up in all the earliest manuscripts, all right? And Luke chapter 6 is where Luke records some of the same stuff that Jesus taught in Matthew 5. And Luke 6, 26 through 27 says this, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you, okay? And that may be more information than you care for, so you can just trash it, right? But if you're following your Bibles, I didn't want you to get sidetracked. And I want you to know that I'm totally okay with keeping those verses in Matthew 5 because they are Jesus' teaching about how we are to love our enemies. And interestingly, in Matthew 5, our text today, it's the first time Jesus mentions love in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the very first time that Matthew uses the word love in his entire gospel. So the first time he talks about love is in reference to loving our enemies. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? We all love tax collectors, even more so coming in the future, right? My goodness. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But I tell you, love your enemies. Question. Enemies. Got any? Like, are there any people who hate you, have hurt you, abused you, dislike you, despise you, betrayed you? Are there any people who have disrespected you, lied about you? People who have left no doubt that they have made it their goal in life to damage you, discredit you, ruin you in any way that they possibly can. Again, enemies. Got any? You know, people who not only hate you, but who even though you know it's not very Jesus-like, you kind of hate them right back. Come on, don't leave me alone out here, all right? <laughs> bring it, brother. Hey, bring it. I liked it. I liked it. And if someone comes to your mind, even a little bit, when you hear me talk about an enemy, if you want this conversation to get real and to have a massive Jesus impact, then you need to keep that person in mind, or persons in mind, right, during our conversation this morning. Get it? Good. Now, as we unpack this uncomfortable conversation, 
Now, one thing I want to do is share a bunch of quotes from a guy who, in my opinion, not only powerfully lived out this command to love our enemies, but he also passionately called others to do the same, I think more than anybody in our recent history, and that is Martin Luther King Jr. All right? So I'm going to read a bunch of his quotes today from a sermon he preached in 1957 in Montgomery, Alabama, about loving our enemies. And this is a guy who was arrested 25 times. He was jailed. He was fined. He had death threats all the time. He had his home bomb while his family was in that home. He had crosses burned on his front yard. He, he was stabbed while doing a book signing. And he was assassinated at the age of 39. And after reading this text, he says this in that sermon. And again, I unashamedly use a lot of his quotes today. Certainly, these are great words. Words lifted the cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many people have argued that it is an extremely difficult command. Many would go so far as to say that it just is impossible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious commandment. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. It says, yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for enemies. Now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. He realized that it's painfully hard, personally hard, but he wasn't playing. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of oriental hyperbole, just a sort of exaggeration to get over the point. This is the basic philosophy of all that we hear coming from the lips of our master. Because Jesus wasn't playing, because he was serious, we have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command, end quote. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Seek to understand what Jesus means and seek to figure out how we can actually live out this command so that we can destroy our enemies by making them no longer our enemies. And the way I want to attack this conversation is unpacking two statements. The first is, you have heard it said, and this is where we're going to look at how the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted and distorted, misapplied the word of God, just like they have done in regards to anger and murder, lust and adultery, marriage and divorce, taking oaths and lying, and getting even when we're wronged. And statement number two, but I tell you, and here's where we're going to look at the what, the who, the how, and the why of Jesus' command to love our enemies. As we jump back into, the, uh, into our conversation, uh, let's just pray a, a, a brief prayer. I think God doesn't want us just to sit here and go out unchanged. I think he has something for each of us here. So, And pray palms open if you're brave enough to say I'm ready to receive from God. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you. What example you said in regards to enemies. One that we, that I frequently do not follow. Uh, God, help your word not just to 
hit our ears, but to hit our hearts. Help us to learn how to love our enemies as you have commanded and demonstrated. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what had the people in Jesus they heard? Love who? Love your neighbors. And how do you respond to your enemies? Well, you, you hate them. And that's exactly what they were teaching the people. And notice that what they were saying, it's half true, right? And by the way, that's, that's the preferred method of all false teachers and false religions, right? Just sprinkle in enough truth to fool and deceive people. And that, that, that philosophy started in the garden with Satan and continues today. Okay, half-truths. So you've got to examine the whole thing. And listen, I, I'm sure that this command, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, was an easy one for most people to embrace. I, I mean, if we're honest, it's what most of us would like to believe is true, right? <laughs> love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Yeah, I think I can do that one. Love people who are like you, hate those who are not. Love people who are from your tribe, hate people who are from another tribe. Love those who agree with you, hate those who disagree. Love those who are on your team, hate those who are on the other team. Love people who like you and are kind to you, hate those who dislike and hurt you. Love those who are for you and hate those who oppose you, like the cruel Roman occupiers. Again, a very easy teaching to accept. And listen, many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day did accept. And in fact, the tendency of most ancient Jews to only love other Jews was noticed by the first century Roman historian Tacitus, who by watching how Jews behaved with his own eyes, he concluded that the hatred of non-Jews was an essential part of the Jewish religion. Question, so did the Old Testament law tell us to love our neighbors and hate our enemies? No. It actually said this, part of the verse they're quoted, Leviticus 19, 18, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And hey, beside adding the hate your enemy part, did you notice what two words that they left out? They left out the two words what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the guys I read this week and his comment on the Sermon on Mount said this, this subtle revision transformed the command about how God's people are to love into a command on who they are to love. Uh, he continues, evidently some of Jesus' contemporaries argued that the command to focus one's love specifically on his neighbor also implied the inverse. That is, one was to hate all who were not his neighbor. And Jesus in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees had a very narrow definition of your neighbor, right? Your neighbor was your own people. Your neighbor was the Jewish people. Interesting, the Greek word for neighbor means those who are nearby. So does Old Testament support the mindset and teaching to hate your neighbor? No. Here's a few examples that clearly teach that hating your enemies and those who are non-Jews was not the life God had called his people to. In fact, in the very same chapter of the religious elite, Leviticus 19, that they distort, we read this, verse 33 and 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. 
The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Exodus 23, we read this. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In Job 31, Job makes the following statement. He's kind of protesting the fact that, hey, I'm innocent. It was not my sin that brought on my trouble. He says this in Job 31, 29, 30. Have I ever rejoiced when disaster struck my enemies or become excited when harm came their way? No. I've never sinned by cursing anyone or by asking for revenge. Understand, even though there are places where God commanded otherwise, the teachers of the law chose to distort and twist the scripture and teach what they wanted. Thus, the understood rule of the day was love your friends, hate your enemy. An enemy was anybody, not just who hurt you, but anybody who was not like you. And tragically, times haven't changed much, have they? There are still plenty people today who dislike someone because of their color, race, culture, or belief. Like they hate anyone who's different than them. And unfortunately, there are still those in power, in media, in politics, in religious circles, whose power and position depends on getting people to hate each other and to see each other as enemies. I've always loved this quote that uh, Charles Barkley made in 2021 at the Final Four. He said this, I truly believe in my heart that most white people and black people are awesome people. But we're stupid following our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, he continued. And their job is this, hey, let's make these people not like each other. We don't live in their neighborhoods. We got all the money. Let's make the whites and blacks not like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. And I think he's spot on. Like, we are so stupid following the lead of those whose goal is to stoke the fires of hatred and division. Understand, brothers and sisters, that they're very slick. They can actually, they're so good at it, they can actually convince you and I that our hatred of these people or someone different is actually justified. But as Jesus followers, we're to follow his lead and not theirs. Amen? Amen. We're to follow his lead and not theirs. Amen? Amen? Let's not play their satanic game of just hating people. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. But I tell you, the question, what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to love to love our enemies. And when I hear those words, I think, Jesus, are you serious? Jesus, you're asking me to do the impossible. And Jesus responds, yes, I am serious. And no, I'm not asking you to do the impossible. I'm only asking you to do what you can do. Understand, Jesus did not tell us to like our enemies. He did not tell us to have good feelings towards those who abuse us. He doesn't say, fall in love with the people who hurt you. And see, I think it helps us understand what Jesus is saying to understand the word that he uses. 
when he says to love our enemies. Most of you know there's at least four Greek words for love. You have the word storge, which refers to family love. A parent to a child, child to a parent. You have eros, sexual love and desire for another person. You also have philia, mutual respect, brotherly love. And then you have agape, which is not ignited by the loveliness of the object, but by a decision of the will. It's a sacrificial love that seeks nothing in return. And here's the point. You can't command storge love. Either someone's a member of your family or not. You can't command eros love. Either you have good vibes and attraction or you don't. You can't command phileo love. Either you have mutual respect and brotherly love or you don't. But you can command agape love. And that's what Jesus does in our text. Amen? Another quote by MLK. It's significant that he does not say like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There's a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus says love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding redemptive goodwill for all men so that you love everybody. And here you come to the point that you love the individual who does evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. That is what Jesus means when he says, love your enemy. The what of the command is love. The who of the command, he tells us to love our enemies. And so Jesus does not, I like that Jesus does not ask us to call them by some other name so that we feel better about them. He doesn't ask us to pretend that there's something that they're not to us. Jesus says, love those people who are your enemies. Love those people who hate you. Love those people who dislike you. Love those people who oppose you. Love those people who lie about you. Love those people who abuse you, who use you, and who do hateful and evil things to you. Yes, they really are our enemies. The what? Love, agape love, the who, our enemies. Got any? You still thinking about them? And now it's fixing to get real, like real, real. How are we to love our enemies? Do good to them who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who persecute you. How? You do good to them. Uh, Jesus commands us to respond to our enemies with practical assistance, to respond by doing good to them. During the American Revolution, there was a pastor named Pete Miller who lived in Pennsylvania. He was a good friend of George Washington. And Miller had a, a bitter enemy named Michael Whitman who did all he could to oppose and frustrate the pastor. Well, one day, Whitman was arrested for treason and was sentenced to die. And Pete Miller walked 70 miles from Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. General Washington said to Miller that he was sorry, but their friendship was not enough to pardon the life of his friend, Michael Whitman. My friend, the old preacher said, he's the bitterest enemy that I have. And when Washington realized that Miller had walked 70 miles to plead for an enemy, he granted the pardon. And Miller and Whitman walked back home together and were no longer enemies. His love had destroyed his enemy. I understand, you don't have to feel good about someone 
to do good for them. However, doing good for them will have an effect on how you feel about them and how you feel about you, right? Because how do you feel about you as a Jesus follower when you know you're disobeying Jesus? If your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Offer practical assistance to them. There was a lady in my first church by the name of Betty Lombardo. She also lived three doors down from me, and I've always struggled with getting even and hating my enemy, so I'm just being real with you. I struggle with this. You know, you hurt me, I go, like, you're dead to me. That's, like, so not Jesus-like, right? I'm a work in progress of being real. Um, And and we were talking about someone who had really done something wrong to Betty. (laughs) She just said, I'm not getting mad. I just baked them something. (laughs) And she did. And she did. And listen, to do something good for your enemy, it's not being a fake. It's not being a hypocrite. It's not pretending they're not your enemies. It's simply obeying Jesus. And God always honors obedience. Amen? Amen. And then Jesus says, bless them. Bless those who curse you. He's talking like verbal affirmation. And let's be honest, nothing is quite as satisfying as a good insult. John Jacob Astor's wife once said to Winston Churchill, Winston, if, I, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. Churchill replied, ma'am, if I were your husband, I would drink that coffee. <laughs> Congressman John Randolph and Henry Clay met on a sidewalk in Washington. Clay said, I, sir, do not step aside for a scoundrel. To which Randolph replied, on the other hand, I always do. And he stepped aside. An envious actress congratulated another actress on a book she had recently written. I enjoyed it, she said. Who wrote it for you? Author answered, well, I did. And I'm so glad you liked it. Who read it to you? (laughs) Boom. Yes. Right, we love that. Sometimes we wish, gosh, I wish I'd have thought of something sooner. But Jesus says, we're to bless those who curse us. There's a great book called The Blessing by Gary Smalley and John Trent. And they define a blessing as a spoken message of high value, a message that pictures a special future and an active commitment to see the blessing come to pass. Throughout the Old Testament, right, we see Abraham blessing Isaac, Isaac blessing Jacob, Jacob blessing his son, saying, I see this is who you are, and I see this great future for you. And, and when we bless our enemies, we, we, we're, we're placing value in them. Hey, this is, and we have to, it may be hard, right? We've got to find the good in them, right? There's, find some good in them. Highlight that good. This is who you are, and I see this great future for you, and I want to do everything I can to help that great future happen. That is what a blessing is. And that's very hard to do for someone that we have uh, concluded is the very incarnation of evil, right? Uh, but there's power. And replying to an insult with a blessing and speaking a message, a blessing, even to, even to our enemies. Do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. One of the guys I listened to this week pointed out, somewhat convictingly, that if you're not someone who prays very often for people you like, <laughs> the odds of you actually praying for your enemies are not very high, right? You know, I wouldn't bet a whole lot of money on it. So that, that, I go, okay, that's pretty convicting. But listen, praying for enemies is powerful. How do I know? Because in my flesh, I fight so hard against it. 
Like, sometimes I just don't want to do it. And when I do it, I do it fast. I do it shallow. I don't really mean it. And I don't do it often. Yeah, the truth is sometimes I think I'm just afraid to do it. I don't want to. Question, will praying for your enemies change them? It could. Will praying for your enemies change you? 100%. Absolutely. Enemies, got any? If so, will you take the 21-day prayer challenge and pray for your enemies every day for the next three weeks? And, and, and I want to offer some ideas that you can pray for them. Right? They're in your notes back there, or you can take a picture on the screen. Right? Here's some things you can pray for your enemies. Think of that person that, oh my gosh. Right? Pray for them to know and experience God's love more fully. Pray for God to make his presence known to them. Get out your phones and take a picture if you need to. Pray that they'll become the person God desires them to be. Pray that they will experience the joy and peace that only comes from surrendering their lives to Christ. Next, we got here. Pray that God will fill their lives with good things and good people. Man. Pray that God will bless their family, bless their relationship, bless their finances, bless their career, bless their physical and emotional health. Goodness. Pray that God will give them the strength to face whatever challenges are ahead of them. Pray that both you and them will come to no longer see each other as enemies. Just suggestions. They're on the notes back there. Um, you can add your own. But if you have enemies and you really want to obey Jesus' command, pray for them. Take the 21-day challenge. Pray these things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a Lutheran pastor who was imprisoned by the Nazis and eventually hung, said this. He understood about enemies a little bit. Through the medium of prayer, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead him to God. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and plead him to God. The what? Love. The who? Your enemies. Got any? The how? Do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. Now, why should we love our enemies? A few reasons. Because hate for hate only creates more hate. Hate for hate only creates more hate. I think our slide says something different. That's the next one. Here's another MLK quote. So good. If you hit me, and I hit you, and you hit me back, and I hit you back, it never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is a person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Men must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it's all a descending spiral ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Someone must have enough sense and morality to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. 
Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. End quote. Why should we love our enemies? Because hate for hate creates more hate. Why? Because of what hating our enemies does to us. Hebrews 12, 15. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Listen, hate and bitterness is a poison inside of us. It causes us trouble. It causes trouble for other people. And it can cause us to miss the grace of God. I mean, would anyone here willingly, knowingly drink poison? Of course not. Hate is a poison. I'm okay. You just begin hating somebody and you'll begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. There's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. It comes to the point that becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can't stand up and see a person, and that person can be beautiful, and you'll call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beautiful becomes ugly, and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad, and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The symbol of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away at the vital center of your life and your existence. It's like eroding acid that eats away the best in the objective center of your life. So Jesus says, because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated, that we should love our enemies. Amen? Next, we should love our enemies because as a child of God, we're called to be like God. That you may be called children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son, it's his, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God sends rain and sun on both the good and the evil. I mean, think about it. Evil people, God's enemies, get to enjoy and benefit from the wonder, beauty, and bounty of God's creation. God shows love to his enemies and to his children. But we as his children are to be like him and to love our enemies. And remember how God demonstrated his own love, right? Sending Jesus to die for us. Remember what Jesus prayed for the cross, from the cross? Here, here's a statement I think it's true. We are never more like God than we love our enemies. We are never more like God than when we love our enemies. My line is, we're never more like God. Your line is, than when we love our enemies. You ready? Than when we love our enemies. We are never more like God. We are never more like God. We are never more like God. So I guess the question is, do we want to be like God? Or do we want to be like the world? Where hate begets hate, anger begets anger, division begets division. Next, we should, why should we love? Because we're called to be more and we're called to be whole. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? 
Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to be more. To be more loving than the world is, right? Like, what's the big deal if we only like people who look like us and who like us, right? I mean, even gangs love the people in their gang, right? You know, even probably Nazis love the other Nazis. What's the big deal, right? We're to, we are to do more. Our love is to rise above theirs and not be like theirs. Yes, we're to love each other, but it's when we love those who are not like us, those who dislike us, that we demonstrate God's love. Amen? What are you doing more? We're called to do more. We're called to be more. We're called to be perfect. Now, perfect, that word does not mean without flaw. It means mature, whole, and complete. See, Jesus is not saying, hey, you need to be flawless like God is because it's never happening. What he's saying here. He says, you need to love completely and as maturely as God loves. And that means we're to both love our friends and we're love our enemies. And listen, there's a wholeness, there's a maturity. We can only experience when we learn to really love our enemies. At least I heard that there is, because I haven't done such a good job. (laughs) But I believe there is. There's a wholeness that we won't experience until we really love our enemies. Finally, we love our enemies because of the redemptive power of love. Can love change and redeem people? No, you're not so sure? Does God, did God's love for you when you were his enemy, did that change you? Right. So can God's love? Does love have redemptive power? Absolutely. One final MLK quote. There's a final reason I think Jesus says love your enemies. It's this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there's a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you'll discover that the very root of love is the power of redemption. You must keep loving people and keep loving them even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who's your neighbor and this person is doing something wrong to you and all that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they may react in ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under that load. The love you see, that love you see is redemptive. This is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. Why do we love our enemies? Because of redemptive power and love. I read this week about an Aramean nurse who had been held captive with her brother by the Turks. And her brother was actually killed by a Turkish soldier right before her eyes. Somehow she escaped, and later she became a nurse in a military hospital. And one day she was stunned to find that the same man who had killed her brother had been captured and was wounded and was at the hospital where she was, and she was his nurse. And something within her cried out vengeance. But a stronger voice called out her to love. She nursed the man back to health. Finally, the recuperating soldier said, why didn't you let me die? Her answer was, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. 
Impressed with her answer, the young soldier replied, I'd never heard such words before. Tell me more. I want this kind of religion. I also read this week about a young teenage girl who was raped and murder, murdered. The guy was caught, tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. And at first, her mom and dad, understandably, were consumed with bitterness. But they soon realized that their bitterness and hatred was causing more damage in them than the guy in prison. And they concluded as Christians that the only way to wholeness was to forgive and to love their enemies. So they went to the prison and they told him that we are choosing to forgive you. And the guy was stunned, never heard anything like that before. And then, knowing the passage about if your enemy is hungry, feed him, they said we need to live out that passage and they began to take food and, and, and baked goods and visit this guy in prison. Eventually, he said, why are you doing this? And they said, because the Father loves you and we also must love you. This guy gives his life to Christ. He leads a disciple ministry in prison. And later, the couple found out that this guy had been orphaned his entire life. And so they came to the prison <laughs> and with a proposal they wanted to adopt him as their child. The redemptive power of love. There was a guy who hated Christians who liked to see them murdered. And there was a guy named Stephen who they pushed him down, 10 foot down a cliff, and they began throwing stones at him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. He saw it. And not long later, right, the redemptive power of love, the love and forgiveness he heard in Stephen changed Saul's life. The what? Love. The who? Our enemies. Got any? The how? Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. The why? Because hate for hate only creates more hate. Why? Because of what hating our enemies does to us. Why? Because as a child of God, we're called to be like God. Why? Because we're called to be more. Our love should stand out. And we're called to be whole, mature and complete, loving the way God loves. Why? Because of the redemptive power of love. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who persecute you. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence and and Lord, this is where it gets real, right? Your word is true. You spoke these words. You weren't kidding. You weren't playing around. And God, we heard some great words from a man who lived this message out. And the question is, God, what are we going to do? Check off another message and go on living the way we had been living? Or God, are we going to choose to live differently? Are we going to choose, God, to be dispensers of your grace, your 
scandalous grace, God, that reached out and saved a wretch like me and everyone in this room. Holy Spirit, help us. This is hard. Holy Spirit, convict us. If we have an enemy, someone whose name just causes our blood pressure to boil and angry thoughts just to flood through our minds, God, give us the courage and the faith and the obedience to pray for them for the next 21 days and see what happens. In Jesus' name, amen.